Many times when people ask me about church, the nature of church, what is church, uh, I often like to begin by uh, responding by what church is not. And there's probably many things that I could share, but a few of the responses as I was thinking this week, when people think about church, uh, here's how I would respond to what church is not. First of all, church is not a building. It's interesting that when you look in the dictionary, uh, one of the first definitions given is that it's a public place of worship, often in a building. Church is not a building. Church is not any one denomination. I know that often there's a sense of tribalism, uh, maybe growing up in the church or within certain denominations and say, I grew up in this denomination, this is the one true church. And I like to propose that all those who are related to Christ by the Holy Spirit, saved by grace through faith, are all part of God's one true church. Church is also not a vending machine. Church is not a place that you go to simply to, and maybe this is sounding more Catholic, but to partake in Mass or to receive something from the priest and then simply go home by saying a certain amount of prayers, by doing a certain amount of good works, and therefore God is obligated to offer a certain amount of graces into your life. It's not an exchange like a vending machine. And lastly, though I know there's much more, church is not first and foremost a business. The bottom line of the church is not to see how much money that we can make, how well we can run programs, how well these transactions happen on a weekly basis, but the bottom line of the church really is giving glory to God. And so we think about these things and and I hope and I assume that in many ways I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but we get an awesome glimpse into the early church and not everything that the early church did, but at least a few things that we... uh, are reminded, encouraged, and see playing out in the life of the early church. And for all the thousands of books that are written on the next house church, mission churches, multi-site churches, ancient churches, more relevant, attractional model types of churches, all of these that some of the books may be good, I'm sure a lot of them probably aren't that great, our text lays before us this morning, I believe, some timeless truths and practices that the church for 2,000 years is seen as essential for worship in the Christian life. And so I'm going to look at three things this morning. You can see them in your bulletin. Firstly, how the early disciples, the Christians, devoted themselves to the fellowship of the saints. Secondly, how the early church, they devoted themselves to the preaching of God's Word. Sitting under the authority of God's Word and the instruction of the apostles' teaching. And lastly, I'm going to Uh, we're going to talk about how important it was for the disciples to to be devoted to the breaking of bread. So that's where we're going this morning. Again, this is just a little vignette of what the early church did. You might be saying, well, they did this, and what about in this passage? These are three things that I believe that we can extract from our passage this morning that gives us a real glimpse and keyhole into the life of the church. And so let's look at the fellowship, the disciples devoting themselves to the fellowship of of the church. Now a bit of context, this is Paul's third time coming into Troas. And he's been on, by this point, quite a few missionary journeys. Traveling into Corinth, traveling into Ephesus, many places getting kicked out of cities, people responding in negative ways. But his goal in going to a lot of these places in his third missionary journey was to strengthen the life of the local church. To raise up leaders in this church. To 
encourage those who are there that continue on, though you may be persecuted and though you may look like aliens in this world where no everyone's saying, what are you guys doing? No, stay the track. What you guys are doing is great. And you're doing this for the glory of God. And I love in the beginning of our passage this morning that it says that on the first day of the week, they gathered together. And Luke is here with Paul. And it's almost sounding as if that this is sort of a matter-of-fact type of thing happening here. On the first day of the week, the disciples are gathering together. They're gathering together to break bread, to fellowship, to hear somebody speak uh, the Word of God to them, to fellowship with one another. And I want us to see here, because I believe in such an individualistic world, Often, one of the fastest growing, and it's not a denomination, one of the fastest growing denominations is, is sort of this churchless Christianity. I can, I can love God, but I don't necessarily need to be part of God's family. I can, I can listen to podcasts, and I, can, and I can read blogs, and I can have relationship with God alone in kind of my prayer closet, but being actually in community with other people, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm more introverted. That's not really for me. And maybe I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but when you look at statistics and when you look at even the amount of people who would say that they're confessing evangelicals but have no tie to a local church, the numbers are increasing exponentially. This would have been a foreign idea to the early church that to love God, to have relationship with God, would be actually divorced from being in the family of God. And so we see early on in this passage here, there was this regularity of people from different cross-sections. At that time, probably slave owners and slaves and those who worked in all the different spheres of society would gather together in this home, this three-story home that was probably rented out somewhere in the middle of Troas. I don't know what it looked like. Christians gathered together to practice and to live out the one another's of Scripture. And now, I didn't count this week how many times the Bible says one another. I actually just typed it into Google because that's what you do and the answer comes a lot quickly, uh, a lot easier to you. But 94 times in the New Testament and 75% of the time through Paul, he's encouraging the disciples in the church to these one another types of sayings. Confess your sins to one another. To honor one another. To forgive one another, it says in Colossians 3. To Again, to love one another in 1 John. To serve one another in Galatians 5. Be devoted to one another in Romans 12. You see this, as believers were coming together, there was a sense of community and love and honor and seeing that we really are a family, a dysfunctional family at that, but we are committed to one another. We don't exactly see in this passage, we're going to go on in a little bit to see maybe a little bit of what that looked like. But I want to ask us this morning, what does this community, this fellowship mean to you? In Hebrews 10, there's this great passage that I was reading this week, and it says this, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So we look around here, the people in our community, maybe some not here this morning, but in community with one another, how are we stirring each other up to love and good works? Why? Well, he's saying that some neglected, some in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of stuff going on, were neglecting to meet together as was the habit of some. He's saying, encourage one another as the day draws near. We're living these one another's out. 
I had the wonderful opportunity this year to oversee the new communities here at Trinity Grace. And I was so encouraged thinking back on the past eight to nine months of people who have hard, hard stuff in their lives. Loneliness and illnesses going on. And things that in my life personally as I looked, I thought, how could this person be going through this? It seems so incredibly difficult. But at the same time, it was, it was a blessing to me to see the body of Christ come around these people. To love them. To lift each other up. To bear in one another's burdens. This is why we come together. This is what the body of Christ is for. That as we live vertically before God and as we receive His grace from Him, it just flows out to the relationships all around us. Have you been able to enjoy the fruit of that? For some reason, has there been an area in your life where it's caused you to draw away from that? Maybe it's hard to be vulnerable. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've felt rejected. And all of these things can be valid excuses to some degree. And yet, in the early church, all the way from Acts 1 through to 28, you see the disciples meeting together and practicing the one another's of Scripture. I was listening to a sermon a little while ago by J.I. Packer, and he said that community with one another is not just a spiritual luxury, but it's actually a spiritual necessity where it deepens and enriches our walk with the Lord. We see this the believers in Troas. And I want to encourage us here, even at Trinity Grace, how can we be intentional? How can we pursue by the grace of God to be a community who's on mission together to practice out these many, many one, another's in passage, uh, one another passages that we see in our passage today of them meeting on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. We don't just see them meeting together though and fellowshipping. We also see uh, some different things going on. We see them breaking bread. We see Paul coming to them, assumedly, as, uh, as an itinerant pastor, as an itinerant leader, giving some instructions of the, of the Word of God. Now, this was an lo- incredibly long passage as we saw today as he preached to daybreak the next day. And so I'm sure that just because of being there and it was opportunistic to speak with these people for a period of time before he had to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost. But we see here kind of a unique story going on here. There's a group of people, the church, they're meeting in a room. One of the boys was sitting uh, by the windowsill, probably between 8 and 14 years old. And before we condemn him for just being tired and not wanting to listen to the sermon, I'm sure being in a room where there's lamps and oxygen being sucked out of the room, just gathered together as you could picture in someone's living room, probably be quite warm where it would be difficult to stay awake. We see this guy, he ends up falling out of the window and falling dead three stories below. And actually, what's interesting, and maybe I shouldn't make too much of a joke about it, but the name Eutychus actually means lucky or fortunate one. And certainly he was on that day. And Paul goes down and he reaches over him and he raises him from the dead, which is an awesome story even just to Paul's apostleship. And Luke saying to these people, you can trust what this guy is saying. This guy is a real man of God. This guy is really sent from the Lord. And what he's saying, you can trust him. But we see here that the early church was committed to hearing the Word of God. They didn't, they didn't just want to hear different opinions from you know, what was going on in the Roman Empire. That they, as it says in Acts chapter 2, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And I want to draw a parallel here. When we hear the Word of God preached to us, maybe not just on a Sunday morning, but maybe as you hear it, 
through a sermon recorded, maybe as you're reading it, when you think about in your own heart, in your own life, do you fall asleep when the Word of God is being preached to you? And yeah, I'm drawing a conclusion here of, of, of it being a metaphor, but do you slumber in your heart when you hear God's Word? Do you, do you remain unaffected? Do you remain indifferent? Do you remain saying, oh, this is just another book that somebody else has said anything. This is, uh, I've maybe heard that before and you've, we've grown dull to it. I think one of the plights in the human heart is that when God's Word is, is proclaimed and preached and spoken, is that our hearts can so easily become dull to it. In fact, as an unbeliever, you're, you're dead to it. It means nothing. It's th- this, is, this can't be true. This is just some, something somebody else is saying. But what the Spirit does in our life, and what I believe the Spirit was doing in the early churches, Paul was speaking through you know, all hours of the night, was quickening people's heart, was raising people's affections to love Christ more. That there's something unique about the proclamation of God's Word that was central to the community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' preaching. And this is why Paul in Romans 10, he says that faith comes through hearing the Word of Christ. Through hearing the Word of God. When you hear the Word of God, do you remain dull? Do you remain indifferent? Do you remain that this is just something that I've heard before? Or does it actually lift something in your spirit? Does it convict you? Does it, does it diagnose your heart to say, man, I'm far away from the Lord. I need His saving grace in my life. Because just as the Word of God is a hammer to show the, the, the epidemic of our hearts and how we're far from God and how we're, we're, we're drunk with all the things that the world has offered to us, at the very same time is an announcement of good news. It is an announcement of the fact that that God came into this world, that He lived a perfect life, He died and He rose again, and because of this, that we get this exchange where He takes upon our sin. He takes our burden, our guilt, our shame, and in turn, we receive His righteousness. We're brought into relationship with God. This is the power of His Word. We can trust God's Word here. And as the community was comforted, as Eutychus was raised from the dead, I'm sure that they saw something different that day, that this man who was speaking to them was not just another person, but someone commissioned by God to bring the truth of God's Word to them. And I pray that on Sunday mornings, but not just Sundays, I pray that as we meet together as believers here at Trinity Grace, that the Word of God becomes alive to us. That it penetrates our hearts, that it convicts us and helps us walk in the way of godly wisdom. Do we fall asleep when we are having a conversation with the Creator of the universe? Or is our heart alive? Does the Spirit quicken our heart to say that it is God when the Word speaks that God is truly speaking to me? One of my fears is, even in being an aspiring person who desires to preach, is that it's so easy to want to become more relevant or compromising on the hard truths of Scripture so that it would become more palatable so that people would receive it more. But are we doing any favors when we become more relevant, when we move away from the hard truths of Scripture? Because it's, it's the truths of Scripture that penetrate to our heart, that challenge us, that convict us, that actually bring true liberation and freedom for Christ to work in our lives.
Are our souls slumbering or asleep? Or do they come alive? As many of you guys have probably heard through the Great Awakening in the 18th century. Through it. First it was in England in the First Great Awakening and then in America in the Second Great Awakening. And it says that as the Word was preached through the streets and in the churches, that tens of thousands of people were awakened in their heart to the knowledge of God. How I pray that that would happen in the city of Toronto, that as we wisely you know, appropriate God's Word to our societies, that hearts would be awakened, that there would be a great awakening in our city to the truth of Scripture and who God is and who we are in light of that. Hearts are dead and dull and not alive that have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But when God's Word quickens somebody's heart to that, all of a sudden you can feel the love of God. You can know and taste the love of God. It becomes real to you. And Paul, for all hours of the evening, we don't know, I'm sure that he had preached maybe many of the epistles that we now see in our Bible today. We don't know exactly the words that he was sharing to them. But we know for sure that it would have been the Gospel of Jesus that was proclaimed all throughout the epistles. All hours of the evening. And so we see them fellowshipping together practicing the one another's of Scripture, sitting under the authority of God's Word by one of the very own apostles. We also see the church gathering together to break bread. And I think that in, in many ways, this is a form of fellowship here. But they took this seriously. When Jesus had said that this is my body, when He instituted these words with the disciples, that this is my body broken for you, that this is my love, that was, this is my blood that was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. This wasn't just this thing that was to be practiced once in a while or some kind of you know, odd, strange things for Christians to do. This was a sign of God's love that He gave to the church. That as Paul said, that every single time that you do this, almost when you meet together, as often as you drink this and as you eat this, the proclamation of the Lord's death is happening in your midst. And so we see that this was a regularity in the church. How often? I think as often as they're meeting together. And I know that for maybe some of us or for some churches they say, well, if we do it too often, if we practice the Lord's Supper, communion too frequently, maybe we'll just start going through the motions. Maybe we'll, it'll, it'll kind of lose its, its, its uh, grip upon our hearts and so we should spread it out a little bit. But there's something powerful, I believe, in the new community as you see even throughout the church age, of every time the disciples were gathering together in its entirety, that they were breaking bread together, that they were practicing the Lord's Supper together. They were proclaiming the Lord's death. And I think that this is a beautiful reality that when we come together to take the Lord's Supper and we say the body of the Lord broken for you, the blood of Jesus shed for you, that it's, this, it's again this sign of love that is being extended to you. It is the gospel visibly being shown to you of what Jesus has done. His incredible, amazing work of what He's done to rectify the situation of us being separated from God. Think about, just think about the, the beauty and the importance of what happens when we take the Lord's Supper. That God has not just made us cerebral beings where we just only think with our minds, but He's given us visible signs of saying, Chris, I love you. And I know for those who say, uh, for those who might say, well, I know that God's loved me. I don't need another sign. And maybe this isn't the, the best parallel to say, but I know for sure with my wife, 
the times when I hold her hand, the times when I put my arm around her, the times where physically I can show that I love her as a sign, it's important. It helps her remember in a significant way that I love her. Now I think in a way greater manner, Christ gives us this element not to show us a, a different side of Christ, but Christ better. To say, here's another way that I want to show my great love for you. And we do this together. We proclaim the Lord's death every single time we partake of breaking of bread. And then Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There's this, this great anticipation about the Lord's Supper that says that this is only a glimpse that really the greater thing is still coming. This is almost a, a rehearsal dinner, so to speak. But when the Lord returns, that will be the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's when we will fully enjoy union with our Lord. That is when we will experience in fullness the glory of what it means to be in relationship with our God. It's this great anticipation, but this is just a glimpse of God saying, we proclaim this until He comes again. It's, it's a hope that anchors in our heart that we're not left alone, that Christ has come, but that He will come again. And so we saw this sign, this gift given to the early church of them coming together, yes, to eat, yes, to fellowship, but also to break bread together and to remember God's love towards them. And I wonder what this would mean to us as we fellowship, as we break bread, as we eat together. Because Paul had said to these people that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's saying, you guys, are, you're getting together and you're missing the whole point. Yeah, it's a communion with the Lord, but it's also a communion of seeing the fellowship of all the saints together. And some were getting together and it's saying you're, you're eating all the food before other people would come and you're leaving some hungry. Or you're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and you're, you're totally mishandling it and you're misusing it. You see, this is an opportunity for the people of God to come together and to fellowship and to unite and to commune together. Do we see that? Do we enjoy that reality when we, even in a few moments' time, can enjoy what Christ has done for us in the Lord's Supper, but also see what is truly bonding of us together in the Lord's Supper to say that we are united not because of where we work, not because of our race, not because of all these things that we identify ourselves with in society, but it's Jesus as the common denominator in our lives. One of the powerful things in the apartheid in South Africa, through whites and through Africans, and just great institutionalized segregation, um, that to many days there still is, or to, ma to many ways, there's still the rippling effect of that going on, not just in South Africa, many places of the world. But churches had to, had to be confronted with this thing that even though society was faced with all the segregation of blacks on one side or whites on the other, or the Dutch here and the Afrikaans live in this part of the, uh, of, of the part of the city, when they came to the Lord's Supper, all of that was diffused, it was dissolved. And churches were faced with the fact that it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter where you come from, but this is something that truly unites us together. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what Christ, how Christ is calling for us to live. In our world today, we're so divided, even as the body of Christ, and I, and I know that there's truth that we really need to hold to, but the Lord's Supper and the breaking of, of bread was something, it was an invitation into union with Christ and participation with one another. 
Something that broke down the walls of hostility and disunity. And so we see in the midst of this eventful Sunday at Troas, the believers coming together in a beautiful way. Who were these Christians? Were they rich Christians? Were they fancy Christians? Were they Christians who were trying to be more relevant to society? Well, I don't know all the ways that they were engaging the lost that day, but I know that they were ordinary believers who become so grasped by this good news of the gospel that they celebrated the life and death and resurrection of their Lord every time they came together. It was a renewed confidence in what God has done for them. Does that mean anything to you today? That as we gather together, that there's this renewed confidence that Jesus loves you. We see it through the preaching of the Word. We see it in the Lord's Supper and the elements. We see it as we fellowship together that we are loved by the God of the universe. How does that motivate you to live? How does that change the way that we live as a church, not just within these four walls, even though I said the church is not a building, but before our neighbors, before the lost, before the the brokenness in our city? Because it's incredible to see that these band of people that we read through the Roman Empire turn the world upside down not by doing anything fancy. They loved their God. They communed together. They did see miracles as we saw in the story of Paul raising Eutychus from the dead and that they were comforted. But it was nothing fancy. It was these things that the church has been practicing as timeless truths for thousands of years that made them coming together so beautiful and was such a witness to the world. The church that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against. So I heard this analogy this week as we fellowship and as we enjoy our union together. It's like the tuning of a hundred instruments to one fork. A hundred worshipers looking away from themselves to Christ for their unity. And in that, their hearts become nearer. We become knit. Not by looking away from God to see how we can be more unity conscious. Not to say we want to we cultivate more unity in our church, but by looking away as a hundred instruments to who God is, that in that place that God binds us together like He did to this community in Troas. And so I pray that we would continue on practicing the one another's, the fellowshipping together in all of our contexts. I pray that we would see God's Word that God is truly speaking to you through the, through the proclamation of the Word, but through the week as you open the Bible through, through your week and as you say, God, speak to me, that this passion would arise that the Creator of the universe has something to say to you. And that when we break bread together, that we would see that we are enjoying our union with God and what He's done for us, but also it's informing us of how we are united together because of Christ. So let's pray this morning. Father, We thank You for this glimpse into the early church. We thank You for Your Word that cuts to our hearts, God. And I pray today that we would be a people on mission to to be devoted to fellowship. That we'd be devoted to hearing Your Word, Lord. Every moment of every day that we wouldn't be looking for a newer, truer revelation, but we'd see that all that You have to say to us has been laid out in Your Word. And Lord, that would mean something so substantial to us. And I pray that as we break bread together in a few minutes, that we would see the sign, the visible proclamation of your gospel to us and how you love us deeply and how that informs to us to love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.